How you guys doing? Oh, man. Man, that is, I don't know, a door of hope. Every time you ask that, that question, it's like crickets. And it's always, but we keep asking, why do we keep asking? We're forcing it. You guys are, you guys are a more lively bunch. I like that. Um, yeah, my name's Cameron. I'm one of the pastors at Door of Hope. And exactly like Simon said, um, it's been, yeah, I think, I think our friendship has developed mostly through osmosis. Like our, our church uh, officed in this building until about two weeks ago. We just moved. So we, we officed here and we were having Sunday services over at Revolution Hall. And we just moved into a new church building on uh, Southeast Taylor. Uh, so until we made that move, we officed here. And so I would, my desk was down there and Simon's was up here. And I felt like there was a weird energy vibe going <laughs> over the last couple years. And, and here we are. Here we are. Um, it really is an honor to be with here. I have a special love for, for this building that you guys have the privilege of worshiping in. Door of Hope met here for a couple years of our lives, and I I feel like this is one of the most beautiful and peaceful, serene, worship-inviting spaces I've ever been in. Uh, So I I just love being here. Thanks for letting me. Thanks for letting me be here with you guys. Um, ah, Let's see here. Bit about myself, um, pastor at Door of Hope. I'm also like Simon. I'm a student over at Western Seminary. I don't know if we've ever bumped into each other in the lunchroom yet, but uh, hopefully that'll happen at some point. Uh, my my family is here with me. I was sitting with my wife Susanna and our two and a half year old Lane, who just went downstairs, and we have a three month old baby named Ezra. So we're not sleeping much right now. Uh, it's so joyful and so tiring at the same time. Um, I could say more about myself, but probably that's, that's enough. I just want you to know I really love Jesus, and I really think he's worth following with, with everything we have. And so it's an honor to open up the scriptures. We're going to be in Mark 9, verse 1 today. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible. Uh, and we will continue in the Mark series as we look at, uh, look at the life of Jesus a bit more. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this group of, uh, th- though, though I don't know most of the people in this room, Father, w- there's a beauty in knowing that uh, in you we are brothers and sisters, uh, and, and in you we have confidence that there's actually going to be an eternity for all of us in this room uh, to get to know one another. And so though I may not even get half the names this morning, Lord, there's a lot of time uh, for us in your kingdom to get to know one another, love one another, and grow into those relationships. So I thank you for that. I thank you for the gospel ministry that uh, Grace City is doing in this city that we all love. And I just pray that you continue to bless this church. And this morning, we just pray that you'd help us understand your scriptures. May your spirit open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear what you have for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. We'll start, we'll start with a little question. Um, it's maybe kind of a weird one, but have you ever really encountered glory? Like, like something overtly, powerfully glorious or, or majestic in your life? Um, I'm, I'm betting most of you have at some point, even if, uh, even if you didn't quite have the language for it. I, w- I was thinking about even just man-made glories, and, and we can talk about all kinds of God-made glories, but I was trying to think about what's, what's like the biggest man-made spectacle 
going on right now. And it, it, I don't know if this is right or not, but the thing that came to mind is sort of the modern like arena concert. You know what I mean? And whether it's, I, I remember like 2009, I saw Radiohead uh, in St. Louis at this big stadium and it's screens and lights and this band that I love playing such interesting, beautiful music and it's loud and the people are like in one accord singing, belting out every song. And whether it's a band, like a, a weirdo band like Radiohead or legitimately like a, a, a pop act like Taylor Swift or Beyonce or something, the, the sentiment is the same. No one is putting on like a greater spectacle, a greater show where like the pinnacle of human technology and artistry and talent is coming together to, to force you to look outside of yourself and just sort of stand in awe of the thing that's happening before you. I'm no Justin Bieber fan, uh, but I really do suspect if I ended up at a Justin Bieber concert, I would be forced to like stand back in awe of, of what was going on, even, even if... I hated the music. Um, uh, of course, there's all kinds of, of God, ma- like some, some of you are like, I don't care about that. Uh, that's annoying to me. The, the lights, they bother me. But you've experienced that same thing when you go and you get out in the gorge or you go up on Mount Hood and you just take in the dramatic vistas and, and you're forced in that moment to step outside of kind of the immediate concerns and your self-consciousness and all of your desires and you kind of have to just go, whoa. Like, this is something, like, notably bigger and grander and more glorious uh, than I'm routinely accustomed to seeing. Have you ever encountered glory like that? Well, just hang on to that thought for a second, because the, the story that Mark's going to lead us into today is kind of operating on that wavelength. So, um, to get there, though, we have to do a little recap. Let's... Well, let's first start with verse, uh, verse one of chapter nine. Read this with me. And he said to them, uh, so this is Jesus here to the disciples again, saying, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now that's an interesting sentence, Jesus. Um, and we, we, we got to connect this to the, the text from Mark that you guys looked at two weeks ago. So last week was Easter Sunday. Uh, but the week before that, Simon uh, taught you guys through this passage where Jesus announces this or brings to the table this profound, all-important life and death question, which was, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, asks Jesus. And Peter gives a correct answer. You remember that? Peter says, you are the Christ. Well, what Peter's saying is that you are, you are the, the Messiah of Israel, this anointed king who we believe God is gonna send to restore God's people. And Jesus acknowledges, Peter's, Peter's correct, but something, you remember what happened? Something really weird happens. Immediately, Jesus starts talking about death and suffering in fact, he, he talks about his own death and resurrection that's going to follow later, and Peter is having none of it. And Peter's like, may it never be, Lord, and Jesus accuses him, Jesus calls him Satan, because Peter, in trying to subvert the death of the Messiah, uh, is actually, it's, it's as if he's in league with Satan and his purposes. No, Jesus must die. The Lord must die if we're to be saved. Um, so, 
Jesus not only talks about his own death and resurrection, but then he says, actually, anyone who wants to follow after me is going to have to take up his cross. He's going to have to die to himself or herself, and they're going to have to follow after me that way. Death and suffering and cross will meet any follower of Jesus that wants to sincerely follow after him, so says Jesus. Anyone who wants to take part of this kingdom that Jesus is about to inaugurate is gonna have to lose their lives, take up their cross, and follow. You remember that. So what Jesus is getting at is this this gospel theme that's really profound that uh, the way of sacrificial love, as Simon has been putting it, it, it sees the commingling of glory and suffering, greatness and servanthood, even life and death are wrapped up in a way that's pretty counterintuitive for us. So that was the story. So with the sense of heaviness, I mean, what heaviness is probably hanging over the disciples at this point? This is kind of the, one of the moments where, where Jesus really opens up what he and his ministry are all about. And he starts talking about death, not only for him, but for everyone that he's talking to. You imagine just a heaviness and maybe a darkness that was beginning to settle in in that moment. So immediately after that, I mean, the next, we have a chapter division here, but this is the same conversation. And he said to them, Jesus, there are some here who will not taste death. He's just said you're all gonna die. (laughs) But there are some here who will not taste death until they sing the kingdom of God after it has come with power after it has come with power. And we just need a side note here on this verse. There's a few ways this has been interpreted. One that that I think is plainly wrong, that it's honestly, I remember reading this as a young Christian and reading it this way, but the idea that he's talking about the second coming or the return of Christ, that the full establishment of the kingdom will come before Peter, James, John, any of the disciples die, before some of them die. Um, Unless like, James is hiding out somewhere, like in a cave somewhere, 2,000-some-year-old James. Uh, I, I think that's self-evidently not the case. Um, another possibility, a lot of commentators think that what Jesus is talking about is the death and res- is the cross and resurrection. So some of you are going to see this full overcoming of the kingdom power over death when you see me raised from the dead, and that's possible. Um, but I, I would lean toward a third option, which is there are going to be multiple manifestations of the kingdom power that the various of the disciples are going to get to see. So that could look like the expansion of the church over the next 30 years recorded in Acts as it begins to reach its tendrils out into the, across the Roman Empire miraculously. It could, have, could be the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the power that happens there when for the first time the prophecies of Joel are fulfilled and the Spirit is poured out on, on the whole church in dramatic fashion. Uh, it could be the death and resurrection of Jesus. I suspect so. What greater display of kingdom power is there than the man that they all saw die raised up to new life and appearing to them and eating with them and hanging out with them over 40 days? It's probably all of these things and the story we're about to look at today that this passage directly transitions into. I think, I think part of what Jesus has in mind is the next 12 verses that follow. So should we read them? Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll read them. We'll read the first few. So verses two through four, it says this, and after six days, 
Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So his inner circle of disciples, kind of the the close-knit group there. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Interesting. So, in the Old Testament, mountaintop experiences were, were uh, or, or, or the mountaintop was a common site for sort of beautiful and intense and, and profound spiritual experience. If you go back and you read Exodus, the second half of Exodus, uh, chapters 19 through 40, you'll see, uh, if you read it with this story in mind, you'll start having all these little moments of recognition. All these little bells will start going off. So if mountains were places of dramatic spiritual experience, but especially for Moses at Sinai, so after God redeemed the Israel from slavery from Egypt, led them across the Red Sea, uh, they, they've settled at the base of Sinai and God starts drawing Moses up to Mount Sinai several times. He goes up and down uh, and God reveals himself and his law to Moses in various stages and in various ways, but it's always up on that mountain. And when, when Moses would go up there, God would reveal himself in different ways and sometimes his glory would manifest physically as a cloud that would descend down and engulf Moses. And when Moses would come down, you guys remember this? After experiencing God, what, what, what did he look like? It glowed, yeah. His face glowed. Him being in such close proximity to God's glory, it hung on him and it reflected back to the Israelites. He was literally reflecting God's glory back to the people. And so, here we have all these similar images. They go up on the mountain and what happens here initially is Jesus is transfigured. It's, it's just a metamorpho-o, uh, metamorphosized, transfigured, or you could just say changed. He's just, his appearance is changed. And his clothes were supernaturally shining and bright. The other gospels tell us it wasn't just his clothes, it was his whole body, his whole face, his whole appearance was shining forth in glory. And then Moses and Elijah are there too. The, the two great prophets representing the law and the prophets taken together, it's like shorthand for the whole authority of the Old Testament story. They're two of the most revered and significant Old Testament figures. They just pop into existence next to shining Jesus. So I question, or my question to you friends is this, what's going on? What is happening? Let's keep reading. Verse five, so Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. I think, I think he's right. I think Peter's recognizing the, the weight and the intensity and the privilege of the moment that they've been led into. But he says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And here's, this is some good explanation here. Verse six, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> I love that detail. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I think we would all be pretty terrified in that scenario. So what, what's Peter doing here? Well, he's afraid, and actually a really appropriate response, uh, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, is to start talking about tents or, or tabernacles. 
So he's picking up again on the Exodus imagery of this story, Peter is, and he's going, okay, well, in that same stretch of Exodus, God commands Israel to build a tabernacle. So a tent outside of their camp where this glory cloud of God can come and it can dwell permanently. And then if you remember, they start setting up this sort of uh, ceremonial system around the tent so that people don't approach the presence of God flippantly because it's too dangerous. So Peter's thinking, okay, God, glory, cloud, Jesus shining thing, uh, we should build tabernacles, we should build tents. Um, He might be saying, we need to set up a tabernacle and rituals to honor what we're seeing and to protect ourselves from it. That might be what he's saying. He might just be saying, we need to set up the tabernacle to house this glory so we can keep it here, so it doesn't go anywhere, so we can maintain and stay in this moment. Either way, either way, what Peter's doing, his move is to start doing, isn't it? It's to start acting. It's to, he doesn't know what to do, so I gotta do something. I don't know. In, In my own marriage, I have this impulse Uh, my wife would tell you, I'm a bit of an emotional fixer. Uh, Some of you in this room are probably like me. I'm I'm not a physical fixer. I have no physical manual labor labor skills whatsoever. Uh, I'm I'm practically useless. Uh, In like life and death situations, you do not need me or want me by your side. Uh, But I I want to be an emotional fixer. So if if Susanna comes to me and she's burdened with something, um, my impulse, uh, and I'm not saying that I'm partic- a particularly skilled uh, emotional fixer, fi- fixer, but my impulse is to just say, okay, so, okay well, well, let's do something about that. Let, let's fix it. Well, have you, have you thought about this? Or what if I just do this for you? Will that fix the thing? And of course, I mean, in, in this moment of clarity, I can say, and you can all recognize what she's wanting, what any of us want in those moments is just someone to come in and empathize and sympathize and listen and bear the burden together. And, and to be present in the moment and, and to connect deeply. That's, that's what most of us are after in these moments. Is it the worst impulse, Susanna? I don't, that's a dumb joke. Uh, it's probably not the worst impulse. Probably a lot of us have this impulse, but it's an insufficient impulse. And Peter's showing us this kind of impulse but we're gonna see what the correct response would be. Rather than jumping to action and trying to fix and trying to insert yourself into it inappropriately, what what should happen? So let's keep reading, verses seven and eight. And a cloud overshadowed them. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, Exodus is all over this, isn't it? The cloud comes down, the cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. The booming voice of God speaks. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So once again, the cloud of glory, the physical manifestation of the splendor and the majesty and the weight of God himself comes and rests on them. 
And the voice of God explicitly and implicitly declares Jesus to be the one. Here's what he says explicitly. My beloved son, he calls Jesus the son of God here. Sometimes in the gospels, this title gets danced around a little bit, but here the father explicitly lays it on Jesus. You are my son. He is my son, which means Jesus himself is divine. A declaration of Jesus's divinity. And secondarily, he says, listen to him. Can, can you imagine this for a second? The, the God of the universe, God the Father, looking at someone else and saying, listen to him. The Father is, in, is putting on Jesus his authority in that moment. Listen to him. Jesus has the authority to speak for God. And then implicitly, this gets even more interesting because the language that God uses here comes right out of four passages that are probably going to pop to mind for people who are super fami- way more familiar than I am with the Old Testament. Um, he, there's this beloved sacrificed son imagery from Genesis 22 too, uh, where he tells Abraham to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. There's, there's the royal son of the Lord imagery from Psalm 2-7. I will tell you the, of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's the chosen servant imagery from Isaiah 42-1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And there's the one to whom we must listen from Deuteronomy 18:15 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me this is Moses talking from among you your brothers it is to him you shall listen It's pretty economical isn't it but but the father is tying together all these threads of messianic hope in these simple the simple phrase this is my beloved son listen to him It's pretty amazing So I ask you again, what is going on here? What is this? What is this transfiguration story all about? Well, I think boiled down, what it's about, it's it's an incredible glimpse at Jesus in his full divine glory. In this passage, he's supernaturally gleaming white in his clothes and his appearance. He's shown to be greater than his forebears as as Moses and Elijah, the two great prophets of old, show up. The cloud descends and God says, listen to Jesus. And Moses and Elijah disappear. It's not to subvert the authority of Moses and Elijah, but it's to say that all of their ministry, all of their teaching, all of their preaching, all of their writing, all of their prophesying, Even the whole story of redemptive history found in the Old Testament points to Jesus, who is greater not only than I, not only than John the Baptist, but he's greater than Moses and Elijah. It tells us he's the very son of God, who is God himself, and that he's the authoritative one to whom God the Father points and says, listen. I feel like what these three disciples got to see in this moment is the manifestation of what I like to call the cosmic Christ, the cosmic Jesus, 
that so many passages talk about. I'm just gonna read these. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John chapter one, jumping around. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made and in him was life and the life was the light of men and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He's the son of God, he's the Christ Messiah, he's Emmanuel, God with us. He's the fullness of deity. He's the son of man. He's the word of God. He's the image of God. He's the savior. He's the holy one. He's the Lord. He is the alpha and the omega. After a heart-wrenching conversation about death and suffering and a promise that those things are gonna come, the Lord who is good and patient and merciful shows them who he is and why even though those things are true he's worth following and he's worth suffering for with everything this is a moment of sincere and deep grace on these disciples at one of their lowest moments he says come with me I'm going to show you something if you're fearful I'm going to strengthen you You're going to see my glory. Have you ever had a mountaintop spiritual experience? I hope so. This, my friends, was the mountaintop spiritual experience of mountaintop spiritual experiences. And then you know what happened? They had to come down didn't they? Let's keep reading. Verse nine. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, well, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So they came down from the mountain. In this life, friends, as sad as it is, we always have to come down from the mountain eventually. There's suffering always around the corner. That doesn't mean God departs from us. Praise God, we're temples of the Holy Spirit who will never leave or forsake us now. 
But these kinds of spiritual highs, they can't last because suffering and death and cross is always around the corner in this life. Jesus once again demands secrecy. He's been doing that throughout the book of Mark, right? Something miraculous and crazy and amazing happens and he says, don't tell anyone. What they'd seen was so incredible and dramatic that it couldn't be shared just yet. Broadly, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he had a plan he had to fulfill. He didn't want to get killed too early, honestly, I think. They start talking about the glory of God shining forth from Jesus' face. That, is, that could be interpreted as some serious blasphemy, am I right? So they have to keep quiet. But by the time Mark was writing, it has to be shared. By the, now in 2019, it must be shared. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He is God in the flesh. And he has cleared every barrier between us and our sin and God and his perfection through his death and resurrection. But did you see, I mean, right as they're coming down the mountain, he starts talking about death again. <laughs> did you see that? Verse nine, until the son of man had risen from the dead. You know, maybe there was a spark of hope that, yeah, okay, he was talking about suffering and stuff, but okay, now we've really seen the real deal. Like, I think this guy's God. I think this is Yahweh amongst us. Maybe, maybe that death thing was just sort of like a, you know, like a 30 minute agenda and we're, we've moved past that. But no, no. The story, it was interesting, the story, we don't, it doesn't say exactly where it took place, but if, kind of tracing the geography of the Gospels, it's likely that this happened at Mount Hermon in northern Israel. And so the descent down from the mountain actually marks the beginning, as, as you'll see as you continue through the second half of Mark, towards his journey south towards his death in Jerusalem. I mean, that's the arc for the rest of the book. It's from the mountaintop where he's shown in his full splendor down to his death on the cross, literally south across Israel. And the disciples want to argue with him again about this death thing, more slightly this time, because they just learned their lesson. If you challenge this directly, you get called Satan, okay? So we're not going to do that. Not even Peter is going to be that bold again. So they start talking about this thing about Elijah. What is this? Well, in the Old Testament book of Malachi... It prophesied that Elijah would return before the great day of the Lord where God comes and exercises both his justice and his judgment, but his healing work of restoration in the world. And and Malachi predicts Elijah to come first. And so the way Tim Keller puts this is that the disciples were saying, hey, we just saw Elijah up there. The day of the Lord must be near. So why are we talking about this death? Like Elijah's here, it's it's happening, we're here, we're, we're good. We don't need to talk about this death stuff. The day of the Lord is at hand. And and Jesus' response, he says, well, yeah, yeah, Elijah must come first. In fact, he he did come first in the person of John the Baptist. He's connecting Elijah to John here once again, who was Jesus' forebearer. John began the process by preparing the way for Jesus, but he said, look, didn't you see what happened to John? The emotional whiplash of, you're the Christ. Well, yeah, if you want to follow me, you're going to die. Oh, you are the Lord of glory in the flesh. Well, yeah, uh, didn't you see what happened to my forebear and what's going to happen to me? And by implication, what's going to happen to you? Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. 
By the way, the son of man, we're told, is gonna suffer as well and be treated with contempt. And by implication, if you wanna stick close to me, that's what you're sticking close to. So I don't wanna overly belabor the point that Simon and and Mark, the gospel writer, made so well two weeks ago, but this, this does remind us again of the gospel theme that suffering and glory go together, doesn't it? It's a promise that the follower of Jesus will suffer to some degree. Any gospel that, that, that pretends that there will be no suffering if you only have enough faith in this world, it's a false one. It's an incomplete one at best. And some of this suffering is going to be directly related to your discipleship to Jesus. So you might be made to feel embarrassed for following him. It's probably a reality for all of us in this room at some time. Maybe this week you experience that. You might fe- face some kind of soft ostracism as you're, as you're sort of pushed out socially for following Jesus. You might find that your time and your energy and your money is, is tighter as you try to live out radical generosity the way that Jesus prescribed. You might feel grossly misunderstood at times because you're faithful to Jesus. You might be emotionally attacked. And depending on where you end up in the world, geographically, you might be physically attacked. You might be martyred for your faith. You might be, I might be. There is suffering that will come because of faithfulness to Jesus and following after him. It's a promise. It's all over our scriptures. And there's another kind of suffering too that you might just call the kind of indiscriminate general suffering involved in life in this fallen world. Some of us are in the middle of it right now and I really don't want to be flippant because I don't know all of you and I hope I don't speak insensitively but some of you are sitting in the profound realities of just deep loneliness right now. It doesn't necessarily have to do with your following of Jesus. You just, you just haven't been able to connect and find community in the rich and deep way that you feel like you ought to. And you're lonely. Some of us have, are currently, or are going to experience abuse, be it physical or emotional. You might develop a life-threatening illness. I might. You could lose your health. You could lose your wealth. You could lose your job, get laid off. Your marriage might be crumbling. Your loved one might be the victim of random violence or some incomprehensible accident. These are not sufferings associated necessarily with following Jesus, but they happen to us, don't they? Everyone in this room has experienced some degree of suffering along that spectrum. From little to big, from mundane to extraordinary, Jesus continually reminds us that in this life, suffering will come. But, but, there's a day, there's a day, friends, a day the Lord has promised to us when the commingling of glory and suffering will end. It will end. And there will be only glory. A day when the good and righteous and just king He will return once and for all to put sin to death, to put injustice to death, 
to put persecution to death, to put evil to death, to put abuse to death, to put violence to death, even to put death to death once and for all. Just read this with me, Revelation 7, 9 through 14. Revelation's a complex book, it's hard to interpret, but let's just jump into it quickly. Uh, John says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, listen to this guys, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to them, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And friends, that made them white. The Greek Greek verb there only occurs one other time and it's to refer to the supernatural whitening of Jesus' robes at the transfiguration. The the word used to describe the incredible purity and power of Jesus' appearance, the divine light shining forth, it's only used one other time to refer to the robes of the slain believers in Revelation 7, made gleaming by washing them in the blood of Jesus. Isn't that so profound? There's a promise, friends, right there that anyone who would trust and repent and follow Jesus. You know what the promise is? That though our sin becomes his sin, his glory becomes our glory. He shares it with us. He gifts it to us. He pours it out on us. Received by being dunked in his blood that he shed for us. So though Jesus is gonna continue to talk about his, show his glory, followed up with the promise to suffering friends, it does, that is not the end of the story, but he does return victorious one day. We sit in the in-between right now. We await for it. I hope you wait for it longingly and deeply, excitedly, that he will come and he'll put it right, every inch of it will be put right. Our sufferings will be over and we'll be worshiping him alongside one another in glory. So are you a follower of Jesus? Here. If you are, do you feel burdened? Do you feel tired? Anxious? Battered? I really pray this story gives you fresh confidence in King Jesus, the one who was born, the humble birth that he, that he experienced, who humbled himself to grow up as a child, whose, whose feet are walking the dirt, whose hands are touching the lepers, who's washing the feet of his disciples, the man of humility who is also, if you look rightly, 
you see is the king of glory walking amongst us. I pray, guys, that this story, the transfiguration story, it gives you confidence in the king that we follow. And when it gets tough, you can trust. He can make good on his promises. He's all powerful. He's all good, more importantly. And we can trust him. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, I just pray that this story will help you see him for who he really is. The story blows apart the notion that he's just a good teacher or an interesting guy or you know, one guy with interesting ideas that you can sort of throw onto the pile. No, he's the Lord. He's God made flesh. Come into this world to be with us on a rescue mission to save us. And if he's that, he's worth trusting and following with everything you have. Will you stand with me? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.